Well, today I want to give you just a little bit of a history lesson before I share some scripture with you. Uh, 500 years ago, day after tomorrow, Martin Luther, a German monk, Augustinian monk, uh, went to the door of the church in uh, Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany, and uh, he nailed to that door or stuck on the door, which is not, it wasn't defacing the door. It was kind of like the community, uh, uh, what is it called? Facebook, yeah, bulletin boards, like the community bulletin boards, like Facebook today. And uh, he posted it right there on the door, 95 questions for debate with the uh, Roman Catholic church and he of course himself was a Roman Catholic monk and uh, in doing that that is the date that we usually say started the uh, Protestant Reformation let me just tell you that uh, it really wasn't the very beginning it was kind of the beginning but there were some forerunners that uh, that helped prepare that date back in the 1100s a man named Peter Waldo uh, in France, uh, began to question a lot of the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church. And he wanted to know why, why people didn't study the Bible. They didn't have the Bible. The Roman Catholic Church at that particular time had become uh, very corrupt, actually. In fact, even Roman Catholic scholars today uh, agree with that. They say that the church was in what we call the Dark Ages and... Uh, Nobody had a Bible except the priests, and all the Bibles were written in Latin, and even the ones who could read Latin didn't understand it. And then when they would read Latin to the people, nobody spoke Latin, so uh, that didn't do any good. So nobody knew what the Bible was saying. And so the teaching was that salvation was in the sacramental system of the church, that if you were baptized and if you had the other sacraments, then you would have some assurance, but it did not include uh, faith in Jesus alone for salvation. And so uh, Peter Waldo in the 1100s began to, to go all throughout France. He and a group of men called the Lollards, And they began to preach and teach, and they were all excommunicated by the Roman Catholic Church because they were teaching that people needed to trust in Jesus and not in the church. And so that was kind of the beginning of it. And then uh, in the next century, there was a, a man named John Wycliffe in England. And John Wycliffe was uh, he translated the Bible from Latin into English. Of course, it was an old English. We couldn't read it today, but it was uh, the English that they spoke in that day. And, uh, and, and they made copies of it. This was before the printing press. So every Bible had to be handwritten, and, uh, and, but they did. And, and, of course, they also he also was excommunicated. And uh, he was actually sentenced to death by the church. But he tricked them. He died. 
before they could kill him. And uh, so uh, about 30 years later, the uh, church fathers uh, had his bones dug up and they burned them. And if I was going to be burned, that's the way I'd want it to be done, you know, 30 years after I died. And uh, unfortunately, some of the others were not that, uh, that fortunate. And then, uh, and by the way, if you were to go to Worms, Germany today, and right in the town square, you would see this huge statue of Martin Luther. And on the base of that statue, on each of the four corners, uh, is a statue of uh, uh, Peter Waldo is on one corner. And uh, um, John Wycliffe is on another corner. And a man named uh, Savonarola, Girolamo Savonarola, is on the other corner. He also preached much of what we'd call Reformation truth. And then on the other corner is a man named John Huss. He was from Bohemia. Uh, Savonarola was from Italy. Uh, Huss was from Bohemia. Uh, Peter Waldo was from France. And uh, John Wycliffe was from England. And these four men are called the forerunners of the Reformation. John uh, Wycliffe is called the, the morning star of the Reformation. And John Huss, by the way, his name, Huss, in the Bohemian language means goose. His last name was Goose. And uh, he began to teach and preach uh, salvation by trusting in Jesus and some, some other pre-Reformation doctrines. And uh, they did burn him at the stake. He did not have the privilege of having his bones dug up and burned. They, they burned him uh, at the stake. But he, he made this statement. This happened in, uh, in 14... 1415, and he made this statement as they were burning him at the stake. He said, you may cook this goose. That was his name. You may cook this goose. But he said, within a hundred years, a swan will arise who you will not be able to silence. And almost exactly 100 years later, Martin Luther came on the scene and started what we call the Protestant Reformation. And by the way, when Martin Luther was put on trial, uh, what he was accused of was teaching the Hussite doctrine, the doctrines of John Huss. And he agreed. Yes, I believe what John Huss taught was true. And so they sentenced Martin Luther to, uh, to death. But they were going to let him go back to his home and gather up a few things, and then they were going to bring him to execution. And uh, he, some friends of his arranged for him to be kidnapped on the way back to uh, Wittenberg, and they kidnapped him and took him off to the Wartburg Castle. And there for the next two years, he hid out. Grew his beard and his hair long, and he uh, uh, dressed like a beggar. 
And, uh, and during that two years, he wrote A Mighty Fortress is Our God during that period of time. He also translated the Bible into the German language. And by the way, in Germany, they spoke a lot of different dialects of German. And so, in a sense, he standardized the German language by translating the Bible into German. And incidentally, uh, Gutenberg had already invented the printing, printing press prior to that, and so they were able to print the Bible in the German language. And, uh, and there are a lot of other things that Martin Luther did. In fact, I just thought it might be good. I, I had jotted down some things that I call the legacies of Martin Luther. Let me just share a couple of those with you. One thing that he did that we are thankful for is that he changed the practice of the way people worshipped. Uh, before 1525, nobody, no, no churches sang. They didn't have music. They had some chants, but they didn't, they didn't sing congregational songs. So, Stephanie, we can just give old Martin a high five right now, can't we, and say thank you very much. He wrote many hymns, and he encouraged other people to write hymns, and he said to the people, we need everybody to sing. We're not going to have just one person up or one group chanting. We're going to have everybody to sing, and they sang songs that were rich in doctrine just like we do today, and prior to that, nobody did that. So Martin Luther is the one person in history that started congregational hymn singing. So thank you, Dr. Luther. We're grateful for that. It would be so sad to come to church and not sing. Now, one or two of you do that, but I mean, shame on you. You, ball, you ought to sing, and, and Martin Luther would be real upset with you knowing that he went to all that trouble to kind of invent congregational hymn singing and some folks come and don't sing well so uh uh but then the second thing that he did he invented well he didn't invent it but he brought back biblical preaching prior to martin luther for several hundred years the church just gathered and they went through uh, they would would have mass and they would go through a certain ritualistic kind of thing that was all in Latin, which nobody spoke, and nobody even knew what was going on, but they felt like they had to go to it. And uh, Martin Luther said, no, we need to have a sermon. And he would take the Bible, open it up, read a passage of Scripture, and expound on that Scripture and say, this is what God says, this is what it means. And in a sense, he was one of the first ones to bring back what we call biblical preaching. Now, Savonarola did some preaching, and so did uh, Peter Waldo and John Huss and some of the others. But Martin Luther is the one that standardized it. This is what we do every Sunday. We sing, and then we have some passage of Scripture read and proclaimed. And then Martin Luther is uh, remembered for the, the solas, 
S-O-L-A-S. That's the Latin word. So I'm going to speak a little Latin here today. That means alone, alone or only. We sang it. If we had sung this uh, song in Christ alone, if we had sung it in Latin, we would have said in Christ sola, in Christ alone. But Martin Luther is the one who listed for us the five solas. Sola gratia, grace alone. Salvation, he said, is not by any works that we do. It is by God's grace alone. That's the first sola. The second one, sola fide, the word for faith, by faith alone. It is by grace alone, through faith alone. And then sola Christus, that is through Christ alone. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and then soli Deo Gloria, for God's glory alone. And those are the four solas. And that became kind of the cornerstone of what's called Reformed theology or Orthodox Protestant theology, that salvation is by God's grace alone. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. And it is by faith alone. It's not by our good works. It is by trusting in what Jesus has done. And it is through Christ alone. Salvation is not in the church. It is not in the rituals. It is not in anything else except in Jesus Christ. And it is all for the glory of God alone. So that's the... uh, the solas, there's four of them. And then the fourth legacy is the family. Hey, they always had families, of course. But prior to 1517 or 1525, actually, because some of this didn't actually get into uh, active work until about 1525. But prior to 1525, the family unit was not considered very, very uh, very much, and uh, uh, Martin Luther, by his example, for one thing, he uh, he was a very very loving husband. His wife, Katie von Bora, was uh, an unusual woman herself. Very very strong woman. She had been a nun. He had been a monk, and one of the things that he did when he began to reform the church was to say there is no place in the Bible where it says that men should not marry if they are leaders in the church. So he insisted that men who are priests should be able to marry. And he said one of the reasons we have so much corruption, so much immorality in the church among the priests is because they're all frustrated uh, and, and they they need a wife. And so he and a other group of monks that were with him uh, put in an order for a group of nuns, and they were smuggled in to his monastery in uh, pickled herring barrels. And uh, it's a very interesting story. By the way, if you want to read the life of 
of Martin Luther. There's dozens, maybe hundreds of books on the life of Martin Luther, but my favorite one is one called Here I Stand by Roland Bainton. It's fun to read, good to read, very accurate historically, and uh, you, you'll enjoy it. But uh, they, of course, it was against the law for those nuns to come and be with these monks, and so they... they uh, put a nun in each barrel and they brought the barrels to the monastery and broke them open and out came not pickled herrings but pickled nuns <clears throat> and these nuns came out and the monks were all over here in the line and the nuns over here in the line and they uh, this monk would say I'll take this one and Oh, goody, goody. And I, not a, what you'd call great courtship or anything like that, but uh, any, meeny, miny, mo. Grab a nun, away we go. And uh, so, uh, uh, but then there was one left over. Uh, Katie didn't get taken. And uh, so he said, well, I, I don't know what you're going to do. And she said, well, how about you, Mr. Luther, Dr. Luther? Uh, I'll take you. And he said, well, by George, I don't see why not. And so, like I say, it wasn't a real, real romantic dating relationship, but they married, and uh, they had several children, and he was a very, very loving husband, and an amazing father. And in the midst of all of the struggle, all of the threats, all of the, the near-death experiences and everything that he had, he would take time every day that he was home to catechize or to teach his children. And, uh, and he set a model for the Christian family. And that family, that family model became pretty much the model for Christian homes throughout Europe during the time following Martin Luther. So that was a, a, a very, very important uh, legacy. And then the fifth part of the legacy had to do with work. Up until Martin Luther, if you wanted to have an important job, you went into the ministry. And you became a monk or a priest or something like that. But everybody else was just considered unimportant. Their, their daily work was not important. Martin Luther taught that every job has honor just as much as a priest. And that every task should be done to the glory of God. And he was the first one that we know of after the Apostle Paul and maybe some of the early centuries of Christianity that taught that every job was an, a, a, a God-honoring job. And if you were uh, working in the field, you did it for the glory of God. If you were working in some kind of factory, you did it for the glory of God. Whatever you did, you do it for the glory of God. And then one last thing I would say is that he and the Reformation recovered the doctrine of salvation. 
uh, the real question that Martin Luther had was how can a sinful man ever be right with God? How can a sinner have any hope of ever going to heaven and living in the presence and in fellowship with a perfectly holy God? And he tried. Oh, he tried so hard to be perfect. But he couldn't be perfect. And he would, he would confess his sins and he would do, he even went to Rome and while he was in Rome, he climbed on his knees up the steps of uh, uh, one of the huge chapels there in Rome. And when he got to the top, knees bleeding and everything, thinking maybe this will impress God. And when he stood up, and looked back down those steps and looked at all the people, he said, how can I ever know? How can I ever know that I'm accepted by God? He went back to Wittenberg, and he began to teach the book of Romans. And as he studied and prepared to teach the book of Romans, he came across that verse that said, the just, the righteous ones will live by faith. And he said suddenly he realized it's not what I do for God. It's what Jesus has done in my place. And he received the work of Jesus for his justification. And then he began to teach and preach and paid dearly for it. Many others paid dearly for it too, by the way. And he began to teach that salvation is not in any effort on our part. It's not in the church. It's not in the mass. It's not in the anything else. It is by grace, through faith, in Christ, for the glory of God. And for all of that, we can be grateful. Now, I just, I could actually go on for seven weeks talking about Martin Luther and the struggles that he faced. And when he was put on trial, they put all, spread all his books out. And he thought that they were bringing him not for trial. He thought they were bringing him for a debate and the discussion. He was so excited. He came to Worms and there before the king of the country, who was only, I think, 20 years old, and one of the chief accusers from Rome, they laid out all of his books, and they said, we just want you to say one word, revoco, which means I, I re revoke all these things that I've written. He said, well, I, I can't say that. He said, I've written many things. And they said, much of what you've written here sounds just like John Huss. And he said, well, I, I can't. He said, give me 24 hours. And they said, all right, you have 24 hours. And the next day they brought him in, and they asked him to recant, to revoke all that he had written. And he said, unless I can be shown by the word of God that these things are wrong 
I cannot recant. And he said, here, here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. And that was, of course, that issued forth his death sentence, which they never got to kill him, by the way. And, uh, and it also nailed down the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. Well, I just thought it'd be good for us. A lot of you already knew a lot of this, but it'd be good for you to know where we've come from. And there was a time when people did not have the Bible. Nobody had a Bible. And uh, there was a time when people believed that salvation was based on rituals that you performed in a church and that men could actually determine whether you got to go to heaven or not. And uh, what really brought forth his uh, 95 theses was the selling of indulgences. And an indulgence was kind of a get-out-of-hell-free card and you could buy it, and it would give you pre-forgiveness for a sin, or you could use it to help get one of your relatives out of purgatory, which doesn't even exist. And uh, so that was kind of the background of his 95 Theses. He was not even a believer. He had not even been what we'd call saved at the time he posted the 95 Theses. It was a couple of years after that that he came to the place of faith, salvation by grace through faith alone. Well, any questions? Do you like history? How many of you like history? Yeah, okay, well, that's good. Well, <clears throat> we ought to like history. I like history uh, because it lets me know who I need to thank. History that has things that have happened in the past have brought us to where we are today. And a hundred years from now, hopefully people will be looking back at us and say, I'm so thankful that great-grandpa stood for Jesus and believed the truth and passed that legacy on down to, uh, to us. So... Uh, just a, a little bit of of a history lesson today. Are you saved? Have you put your trust in Jesus? Probably throughout all of our Baptist churches, there are people who are trusting in their own good works or they're trusting in their church affiliation or they're trusting in their baptism and they're not trusting in Christ alone. And if you were to be asked the question, if you were to die today and stood before God, and he said to you, why should I let you come in to my heaven? What would you say? And there are many people who would say, well, I've tried to be a good person. Or I've, I've tried to keep the Ten Commandments. How's that working for you? Or they'd say, well, you know, I, I, 
I've gone to church. Or they might say, my daddy was a preacher. Or they might say, I was a preacher. They might say lots of things. All those are the wrong answer. All of those would hear the statement from Jesus, depart from me. I never knew you. But there is a right answer. And if you were to say, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. I'm trusting only in Jesus. And I know I don't deserve it, but I believe that God loved me so much that he sent Jesus to take my place and to pay for my sin and that he rose from the dead so that he could give to me eternal life as a gift, a free gift of grace. And to those who say that and mean it and really have faith, the door is open. And I would say to you, if you're trusting in anything in you or around you, if you're trusting in anything for your hope of salvation other than Jesus alone, I urge you today to transfer your trust. Put it in him and him alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for John Huss, Peter Waldo, Girolamo Savonarola, and Martin Luther, so many, many others, Philip Melanchthon, so many others who stood against the tide of their day and were willing to be unpopular, willing to be counted as heretics for standing for the truth. And I thank you for the legacy that they've passed on to us. Help us to be faithful with our part of it. And as we have received from the last generation the baton of truth and faith, help us run with endurance the race that's set before us, fully intending to pass the baton to the next generation so that they also may run with faith. And I ask it in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. We invite you to like us on Facebook or visit our website, www.bearcreekbaptist.org. If you're not a member of another church, We would like to invite you to join us in person and get to know us and let us get to know you. Have a great week and may the Lord richly bless you.